The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Well, welcome again, everybody. My name's Mark Nunberg. Um, you know, I know many of you, but there's probably a few folks who are new to the Common Ground Buddhist Studies class here tonight, and a big welcome. Entering this, or now in this new world of doing things online, it's more of a challenge to feel part of the community. So we actually have to work on that. And uh, of course, it's never been a perfect community as much as we aspire to be a welcoming, open community. Not everybody feels welcome in that way. So I just, it's always, I find useful to acknowledge how important, you know, to do the spiritual work. Safety is really important. And in this world, and even in this community, we don't always feel safe. We're not always comfortable. We're not always, we don't always have what we need in our lives. And that clearly gets in the way. So... It's nice, and it, and it's nice to acknowledge that because part of what we'll be studying with the Four Noble Truths, this essential teaching from the Buddhist tradition, is just acknowledging the reality of suffering in our lives is really how we begin, and I'll talk about that tonight. But as you saw, maybe, or hopefully even experienced a little with the meditation, which is really more about not opening to dukkha, but really uncovering this potential to settle what we call samadhi, to touch into some gathering or unification of the heart, some stability of the heart and mind, and the good feeling that arises with that continuity of present moment awareness. Because in this more resonant inner sense, it really is a safety that is more dependable than a lot of the other things that we rely on to make us feel safe. That uncovering the capacity of our heart to be calm, to be gathered or collected, stable in the present moment, is a kind of emotional, psychological, and even spiritual healing that we want to uh, we want to develop our capacity to recognize and, in a sense, to feed, to develop that capacity to be settled, to be gathered, and it's obviously it's useful just in the ordinary sense of dealing with what comes at us in life, showing up for our relationships, showing up for the world, showing up for our jobs and our responsibilities in life. But as challenging as that is, it's also very challenging to do spiritual work. And this stabilizing, this centering, this gathering, this uncovering of, of this inner goodness really is an essential part of waking up. And, you know, when we talk about, as the Buddha does, you know, he really grounds so much of his teachings in the reality of dukkha, the Pali word for, usually gets translated as suffering, might be better translated as this underlying unsatisfactoriness, uneasiness, even when circumstances are good, the heart has at least a subtle discontent and uneasiness, even when conditions are good, not just when they're difficult. And so to do this work of seeing dukkha, seeing the unsatisfactoriness, seeing the difficulty, seeing the truth that experience is unreliable, ungovernable, inconstant, that we can't actually create or construct ground that provides, you know, a solidity and a permanence in our lives, 
Um, when that's happening, you know, when that difficulty is happening, it's not so easy to be interested if we don't have that inner stability. So in the guided meditations, you know, you might think, oh, this is a course in the Four Noble Truths. I'm going to get really interested in dukkha and what is difficult in life. But, you know, and maybe especially these days, that may not be the skillful approach. The skillful approach to, like, in the course of these eight weeks, to learn something about dukkha, to see something that you haven't seen before, it might be better to emphasize the stability of present moment awareness. You know, it's just uh, useful for us to take a look at the stories that come from the discourses, the suttas, and we don't need to believe that they're actual historic events, but they're really useful teaching stories. So after the Buddha's awakening under the Bodhi tree, you know, the story is that he hung out under the tree for a number of weeks, and he didn't really know what to do with what his, you know, what his insight, what his awakening, that experience was for him. He didn't know what to do with it, except there was a sense, you know, as the story goes, that it was pretty subtle what he had come to understand, and that it wouldn't be easy to share. And it wasn't until he realized um, just that kind of broken-hearted understanding that people wanting to be free of suffering, wanting to be free of all of our mental drama that torments us so much of the time in our lives, people do exactly what creates that mental torment, right? So he realized that people want to be free, want to be liberated from the torments of their heart, but in wanting to be free, they do exactly what creates those torments. And uh, that's part of what broke the Buddha's heart open, you could say, and created that avenue for him to do his best to teach. And then also in the, in the tradition, you know, it said that it wasn't, the Buddha didn't get it right the first time. There's a very funny story, and I won't go into great detail, but just after his, soon after his awakening, running into somebody, and uh, just on the path, uh, on the road, and he tried to explain, you know, in brief, you know, who he was, what had happened to him, but it was a little over, a little too much, a little overwhelming for the person who just, as it said in the in the story, just sort of left by the side road. May it be so. I think I'll go this way. And then uh, the Buddha had some time. He was walking several days to reconnect with some old uh, friends that he had been practicing with prior to his, his awakening. So he had a number of days, possibly, you know, I'm filling in with my imagination, to reflect about how he might share what he had come to understand. And I think it's, you know, in the tradition, it's really interesting, as the story goes, that the innovation or the decision the Buddha came to is, I'll ground my teachings around this very real, obvious, actually, experience of dukkha, suffering. And uh, this really aligns with my own experience as a practitioner. You know, I when I think about you know, kind of my own spiritual path. I remember times in high school just clarifying the truth of dukkha, the unsatisfactoriness in life. And, you know, I consider myself very privileged in so many different ways. Grew up in a pretty stable household. It wasn't perfect, but it seemed like there was love in the house and and relative order and... um, you know, and same with the community I grew up in, and being a white and a male uh, certainly helps in terms of just feeling relatively safe in the world around me and my community. So I had a lot of privilege, good education, all those sorts of things, 
And there I was in high school, moments, times, you know, this, these were unusual moments in high school, not the usual ones, but just having some real clarity of the kind of rat race or the, you know, the other image we often use, phrase we use is sort of chasing our own tail, running in circles. And just really seeing that both in terms of my own life and any way I could imagine my future and seeing other people living their lives seemed like a lot of people chasing their tails. And where does it all go? And this sort of opened up as a junior in high school in particular. And then after a while, that, that sort of clarity and perspective disappeared again. And I became an ordinary teenager for a while. But it, you know, periodically it would come back. And, I, you know, it came back then as a 19-year-old in a strong way and came back very strongly, um, you know, when I was 24 and 25 as a young adult. And in a way, this is uh, more than almost anything, like with our Dharma friends, in a way what can distinguish Dharma friendship, meaning dear friends who are on a, an authentic spiritual path, is this uh, telling of our life story in terms of our coming into a more honest and clear and heartfelt relationship with dukkha, with unsatisfactoriness. And this is not, you know, we're not uh, talking about metaphysical truth. We're just talking about a more grounded and real relationship with what it means to be a human being, to have a body and a conditioned mind and emotions and the package you know, that really is what it is to be a human being. And what, you know, so much of our experience as a human being is really running away from discomfort. I read a really powerful passage the other night. <clears throat> Maybe it was Sunday uh, during the Sunday morning talk. And I was uh, reading an interview uh, somebody did with Lama Rod Owen. Uh, who's a well-known Zen teacher, activist, and he was talking about decentering comfort and centering our lives around discomfort, like learning to handle discomfort, learning to handle the uneasiness, and initially it might be just learning to deal with the aches and pains of a body or learning to deal with emotional heartbreak or emotional anxiety or the different unpleasant emotions that come our way. But it, it's, um, we're really working up to this place where we can be intimate with life. And the fundamental unsubtle but ungroundedness, the absence of ground, the absence of a permanent resting place for me. And we seek it in all kinds of different ways. I might seek that permanent resting place by convincing a lot of people to like me or convincing a lot of people to respect me or feeling like I'm totally independent. I got my big car, I've got money in the bank, I've got my secluded home, you know, that's protected or hidden and but one way or another we think we can have solid ground, we can get comfortable, where I will be immune from being pushed around by life, because I've thought it all out, I've figured it out, I've used my competence, I've used my power, I've used my privilege, I've used whatever I can get my hands on to create a sense of safety. And it's that pursuit of comfort and safety in that lasting permanent way that makes us so underneath uneasy and anxious. Because whether we admit it to ourselves or not consciously, unconsciously, under the surface, the heart knows, the mind knows that whatever we have can't be counted on. 
And this is what, for me, because it aligns so much with my own experience as a young person, this is what, for me, made these teachings so trustworthy, really opened my heart, and I was willing to listen to a lot of the other teachings initially in Buddhism that didn't make as much sense. But the teaching from the Buddha on dukkha, on the underlying nature of unsatisfactoriness, that just made a lot of sense for, to me. And it gave me a lot of confidence that this tradition or this set of teachings had something for me to learn. And so I, I paid attention. I studied, paid attention, did my practice. So by the time the Buddha met those uh, former Dharma friends of his, that they had left him because they had thought he had gone soft, given that he had stopped doing ascetic practices like fasting and actually ate healthy food, took care of his body. And they were really thinking that because life couldn't be counted on, that you can't find a refuge in comfort, they thought the path was to deny the body comfort, to learn not to listen to the bodily needs. Right? That's a tried and true path in a lot of spiritual traditions, this sort of asceticism. And there's some value in simplicity, no doubt about it. And Buddhism has a lot of value, uh, valuing of simplicity. But asceticism for its own sake, you know, rejecting or um, not listening to the needs of the body, for example, can't be, isn't an end in itself. That was very clearly taught by the Buddha. And so they had left him. But after his awakening, he thought, yeah, but these folks probably, they might find some value in what I had come to understand. And so, like I said, he, he basically met them where they had sort of left off, where he said, okay, we all agree that pursuing sense pleasure doesn't lead to a true refuge. And then he kind of threw the first curveball. But also rejecting sense experience doesn't lead to any true refuge either. So he's sort of setting up his teaching on the middle way. These ascetics, they already knew that from their own experience, their own reflection, the limitations of trying to have real security by pursuing comfort in life. They didn't, you know, and the Buddha never says that comfort is bad. Comfort is actually really, you know, the having the privilege, the affluence to live, in, and just the good fortune, like to have a healthy body, for example, and to live in a place, in a community that's relatively orderly, where people aren't being abused, which, you know, they're being abused here in our community. But to be somebody not, that isn't being exploited or manipulated or marginalized, and to have shelter and to have food and to feel like we belong, right? It's really important, but it doesn't alleviate my existential uneasiness. And in some ways, all that privilege, all that comfort can create conditions to take a closer look or those privileged, nice conditions can be used as a way to stay deluded and distracted. Because we just look, we get interested in just making our nice situation a little nicer. And you know, that's just, let's be honest, for all of us who have a relatively comfortable existence, if we're very honest, if we could, you know, really map out one day in terms of how the mind was engaged, you know, what percent of our mental activity was all about improving our comfort, improving safety by, you know, trying to have certain sense experiences and trying to have, trying to get rid of other sense experiences that are unpleasant. I mean, it's clearly the majority, the great majority of our day the mind is involved in this, you know, pursuit of comfort, 
pursuit of safety on this just bodily level, emotional and bodily level. And again, it's not to dismiss that, but just to question if that is should be my only pursuit. Or could I frame that any work that I do to be comfortable and safe is actually therefore in the service of seeing, seeking a refuge that is more dependable than any kind of comfort. Because, you know, the bottom line is even if we we were the most fortunate and the most competent person in creating the conditions to be comfortable, to be loved, to be in a really lovely community, you know, it's still all going to go away. It won't last. Death will come, right? Loss will happen. Change will show up. So the heart knows this. And so he started where they all agreed, sense pleasures, sense contact, comforts, is not the ultimate refuge. So he got him on board. And then he said, but rejecting, thinking that rejecting the needs of the body, the needs of the emotional heart, thinking that rejecting or denying leads to some kind of lasting refuge is also a very limited way to be walking the path, to be living a spiritual life. So maybe that got, it, got his friend's attention. And then he, then he basically says, there's a middle way. And the middle way is at the midpoint between pursuing sense pleasures and rejecting sense pleasures. The middle way is not building your life around getting sense experiences that are pleasant and not building your life around a rejection of life and a rejection of sense pleasures or sense experience. Seeing both of those as dead ends, which sort of kind of leaves us hanging there, like, well, I don't know what to do. But it, you see, it really puts in the, us in a position of humility. And this is a good place for us to start our eight-week course. We're really calling on our life experience all the nice things that have happened to us, all the things that went our way that we wanted, you know, and then it went our way we got. And still notice the uneasiness the dissatisfaction, the feeling of being incomplete and uh, anxious. And any time, we could also reflect on any time we wanted to give up, we wanted to be done with it. We felt betrayed and we wanted to, like, what has that led to? What is any kind of identification with helplessness I want out, this isn't fair. doesn't mean that those feelings aren't justified, but pragmatically we need to ask ourselves by identifying with that idea, I want out, this isn't fair, I'm done. What does it lead to? Because that's, you know, the Buddhist teachings, if anything, they're very straightforward and pragmatic. Pursuing sense experience as a way toward lasting happiness doesn't work. Giving up on life, pulling back, identifying with being helpless, blaming others, blaming the world. All of those versions of giving up don't lead to lasting happiness. And so, beginning our class or eight-week class, or eight-week study. We want to inhabit this middle space where we only know what isn't the way. (laughs) We don't know the way, but we've got some wisdom about what isn't the way. And, uh, And be really grateful for that clarity, 
of knowing what's not the way. This is from Ajahn Sumedho's book, The Mind in the Way, one of the study um, articles that I'll include in the email tomorrow will be this, and I sent it out to some of you already um, who have already registered um, Ajahn Sumedho's book, The Noble or the Four Noble Truths. But in the, his book, The Mind in the Way, he also has a chapter on the uh, Four Noble Truths, and this is from the section on the First Noble Truth. He writes, and by the way, Ajahn Sumedho is a Western Buddhist monk, uh, well into his 80s now. He's one of the most senior Western Buddhist monks in the early Buddhist tradition, Thai forest tradition. And in this book, Ajahn Sumedho writes, The first noble truth is the simple fact that we experience dissatisfaction or discontent or suffering or sorrow. This suffering referred to as dukkha in the Pali language, is something we can see directly. There is no one who hasn't recognized some kind of disappointment, dis-ease, discontentment, doubt, fear, or despair at some time in their life. The first noble truth means that things are always incomplete or imperfect, even when you get everything you want. Suffering doesn't necessarily mean that your mother doesn't love you and everyone hates you, you're poor and misunderstood and exploited. You can be loved by everybody, have wonderful parents, be blessed with beauty, wealth, and all the opportunities that any human being could possibly experience in life, and still you will be discontented. Still you will have this feeling that something is incomplete, Something is not yet finished. Something is unsatisfactory. And then a little later in this chapter, he writes, First dukkha has to be realized, made real in our mind. In other words, it has to be made fu a fully conscious experience. You're in this very limited condition, an earthbound body. A body is subject to pain, to pleasure, to heat and cold. It gets old and the senses fade. It has illnesses and then it dies. And we all know this, that death is waiting there for all of us. Death is here. It's something that people don't like to consciously reflect on or recognize. But it's something that can happen in any moment. As long as we don't know the cycle of birth and death, as long as we don't understand ourselves, as long as we are heedless and selfish, we're going to suffer. When we start suffering enough, we suddenly ask, why am I suffering? That's when we suddenly awaken. The first noble truth is not a doctrine, it's a pointer. It's not saying everything is miserable, sorrowful, and disgusting. It's not a negating kind of teaching. It does not say that everything is suffering, but it says, in the Buddha's words, there is suffering. And this suffering is here within our experience. We're not trying to blame our suffering on something outside. It's not because of my partner. It's not because of my mother and father. It's not because of the government or the world. We're looking at the, that very suffering within the mind, the suffering that we create ourselves. And that's the important thing. The Buddhist teachings are really teachings that address what we could call mental suffering. The squeeze in our heart, the tightness in the mind, that the mind does as it's relating to experience. And uh, what we tend to do is we tend to externalize the cause. Like when I'm hurting, I look outside, I look at what's happening in my life, and even 
I'll objectify myself. What am I doing? Or what are you doing to me? Or what's the world doing that's causing this squeeze of my heart? But the real insight the Buddha had was, what is my heart? How is my heart relating? And how does that correlate with this experience of suffering? This is the real breakthrough. And so that's why this first noble truth, and I know that word, both the word noble and the word truth, you know, first of all, they're just not commonly used and when we do use the word truth you know it's like Stephen Colbert truthy truth truthiness or I forget how he said it but it's like we sort of are cynical about that word truth and certainly the word noble and I don't know if you realize this but uh, Pali and Sanskrit being an Indo-European language the word the Pali word for noble is Arya which is like the Aryan nation, you know, just this idea of being special or better than. So there's a lot that's problematic with, you know, the four noble truths, the first noble truth, but it's really ennobling maybe a better word, something that's enlivening and gives life uh, spiritual meaning, right? So an ennobling truth, an ennobling experience, an ennobling insight. So truth, the word for satya is the word for truth in Pali, and it really means what's real. So not true in some, something we believe in or something that's um, constructed, but what's true, as in what's real, what's here and now and real. So there's something ennobling, something that's enlivening and liberating about what's true, what's real here and now. So these four truths, these four experiences or four uh, insights, they're how we use the stability of present moment awareness and then we get the pointing out, like what do we do with the stability of present moment awareness? Well. The Buddha says, friends, there is dukkha. There is this truth of suffering. There is this underlying characteristic of experience being unsatisfactory. It should be understood. It has been understood. So three steps, three insights. This honest acknowledgement a little bit like I think I had as a young adult in moments. Oh, oh my God, there is this truth of suffering. And I saw it in my own heart and how I was relating to my life situation, my my circumstance. And I saw it in everybody else's life and the way they were relating to their circumstance. And it was in no way saying that there wasn't joy, there wasn't pleasure. It's just that behind everything was a fundamental uneasiness in human hearts. And we can catch it if we're not so wrapped up in pursuing sense pleasure and we have moments where there's just more clarity and more curiosity, we'll see it. And it's like training the mind to perceive the truth of dukkha. Now, why would anybody want to train their mind, their heart, to be sensitive, to perceive the truth of dissatisfaction, the unreliable, unsatisfying nature of experience. And the answer to that, and this is for us to check out, is the Buddha says it's liberating. It's liberating to get interested in dukkha. It's not depressing, (laughs) although it certainly sounds that way when you hear that. But the question is, are we interested enough to check it out? And the Buddha was very clear, there's really no authentic development of a spiritual life that actually is liberating without doing without starting in this place around dukkha around 
this truth of unsatisfactoriness. Here's a particular sutta. Just as, practitioner, if anyone should speak thus, without having built the lower story of a house, I will erect the upper story. This would be impossible. So too, if anyone should speak thus, without having made the breakthrough into the noble truth of dukkha as it really is, I will completely make an end to suffering. This is impossible. Right? So without studying dukkha, that somebody could realize the liberation, the heart that is fully released of stress, that is impossible. Well, that's, that's a pretty compelling pointing out that the Buddha is saying that there's no way forward without us getting interested in dukkha and really being a sincere, devoted student. It isn't just hearing a talk on dukkha, right? This talk and next week and then we'll have small groups next week. It, they're just supports for the moment-to-moment -moment work that... Uh, builds this insight into dukkha. So one thing you can do maybe in the next day or two is you might even want to do a little inventory. So you're just sitting there with a notepad if you like to write things down. And you're just reflecting in your life, maybe it's certain relationships, maybe it's certain experiences like being in traffic, maybe it's certain memories, Maybe it's certain fears of the future. But places where you notice there's that squeeze or that weight, that unpleasant experience of suffering, mental suffering in your life. And it's not about judging, just get a general map of where those places are where you regularly experience some mental suffering. The heart hurts, the heart feels weighed down or burdened or squeezed or tight. And then, once you have a handful, let's say, or at least a few, then practice in your mind, in your heart, seeing that place as a teacher. And in particular, at least a couple places in your life that regularly arise, if not every day, often enough in your life and then really construct the story that this is a respected teacher. That I don't really know how to show up to suffering. I only know how to run away. I know how to deny it, wish it weren't there, pretend it isn't there. But now I'm going to undertake the training in the three ways. There is suffering, it should be understood, it has been understood. So this refuge we took at the beginning of Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, right? So we want to resolve to wake up and the Dhamma we're going to wake up to are these places in life where there's some mental suffering, the heart hurts. And we're not going to presume we know anything. It's not about fixing it. The desire, the wholesome desire is to want to understand. And you may need to, uh, you may need to um, really remind yourself, I just want to understand. And some people are asking, yeah, it is being recorded, so... If you're having, for whatever reason, some internet problems tonight, uh, it will be available on our YouTube page and also on Dharma Seed, uh, just the audio recording. So, sorry, not sure what the problem is, uh, whether it's at my end or other people's end, but we'll uh, have our IT person check it out. But we'll just continue for the people who can hear. 
So you might want to just make a mental note of this homework, mapping out some places in your life where there's some dukkha. Really do the work of like bringing that place to mind and revisioning it as a teacher. And you can even, like if you're creative, you can even just visualize it in some way and really that sense of wanting to bow down to it. Oh, I'm going to turn what would normally be considered a real problem into something I'm grateful for because it could possibly teach me the way towards more freedom where my heart isn't dependent on anything. The freedom isn't dependent on whether this is this way or whether this is that way. The second part of this discourse, the Buddha says, Just as practitioner, if anyone should speak thus, having built the lower story of a house, I will then erect the upper story, this would be possible. So too, if anyone should speak thus, having made the breakthrough, right, having deep insight to dukkha, seeing it as it really is, I will completely make an end to dukkha. So here, you know, in the story or in the simile, the second story is realizing that beautiful, full release, releasing of the heart, the heart releasing its grip, releasing its grasping habits, its attachment and identification, that that release, like we all kind of know that non-attachment feels good, you know, to be engaged without the stickiness of attachment, without the stickiness of identification. Like to be working with a group of people without my heart being hung up, whether they like me or not. Right? That non-attachment, we all know that feels so good. But to to think that we can have that non-attachment, like to really be in social situations without having done the work of getting actually curious about that dynamic of being social, you know, having social fear, you know, being self-conscious or wanting people to like us or wanting to impress other people and, and not having really studied how my heart is participating in the social anxiety that I experience. Instead, just projecting it out there, or blaming my parents, or, but actually seeing how the heart right now, the habits of the heart and mind right now, are part of the arising of this social anxiety. And so the Buddha is saying that, sure, it's great to vision, to have that resolve, to, you know, I'm just using this example of social anxiety as just one expression of dukkha, right? But to imagine that I can live my life as a human being with no social anxiety whatsoever without having to get interested in social anxiety as it exists moment by moment in my heart in certain moments without being a good student the Buddha is saying that is just impossible but if you are a good student of the social anxiety and, and stabilize enough so you actually feel safe to be interested and that will be a big part of these eight weeks is how can you find enough safety in your life by keeping what is wholesome in mind, you will feel more safe so that you can actually be a good student of dukkha. Dukkha is dukkha. And as Sharon Salzberg says, I think in her book on loving kindness, a really, for me, a very pithy, powerful phrase, and I think it's really useful for people who have gotten interested in Buddhism to hear this. Um, Sharon Salzberg is one of the founding teachers of IMS and one of our sort of grandmother wise elders in our Western insight meditation lineage. And uh, somewhere in early in the book on loving kindness that Sharon wrote a while back, she says something like, this is a bit of a paraphrase, that suffering is not redemptive, 
but opening the suffering is redemptive. Right? So just knowing that we're suffering isn't redemptive. But finding a way to be stable and to actually be curious, oh, there is suffering. It should be understood. It has been understood. These are the three insights the Buddha talks about. The insight that the recognition, oh, right here and now there is suffering. There is stress. There is a heaviness in the heart. There is a tightness in the heart. Ah, this is my teacher. This is relevant. Yeah, maybe something I don't want to be happening, true. But right now what I'm sensing is skillful is to realize that there's probably something here I haven't clearly seen or understood about this squeeze, about this heaviness in the heart, about this experience of suffering. Ah, it has been understood. That's the third insight in this first ennobling truth, relating to reality in an in a noble, in an energizing and liberating way. And it's really important, you know, we get these maps, obviously passed down in this, you know, in this institutional way uh, in Buddhism. And we get this particular teaching on the Four Noble Truths. And we don't want to just sort of take it as some kind of answer, but it's really a pointing out. And now the hard work actually isn't just in hearing, as important as that might be, but like, how do, how do these teachings illuminate my own experience as a human being? And that's each of our responsibility. Nobody can do that for us. Um, you know, we're doing this experience together. Uh, we're doing the study together, but we're really alone. Like we're, the application is really done in this personal way where we're taking the teaching and it might be useful to be in community as we reflect on it and talk and try to clarify the pointing out, the concept or the the words, so that we can then use these words and these ideas to see what we're not seeing. And that makes it living Dhamma, not just this historical tradition, but pointing to something that's real in our heart. So in that way it's really pragmatic. And we have to find our way, we have to become independent. What, when I do it, leads me to see what I haven't seen before? Learn what I need to learn to be a wiser, kinder, more skillful, lighter, freer human being. That intuition, taste, and realization of freedom is actually the only thing that's trustworthy is the practice that we're doing, the way we're practicing, is it onward leading? There's a funny and poignant poem that I've read from time to time. Many of you know it. It's called Autobiography in Five Short Chapters. And I think it has a lot to say about our study of dukkha, suffering, the cause of suffering, the release, the moment of ending of suffering, realizing the heart that's free of suffering, and realizing the path that leads to the heart free of suffering. So those are the four noble truths we'll be uh, studying. There is suffering, there's a cause, there is moments, there are moments where the heart is fully released, no suffering. There is a way of living, practicing, that leads to that full and unshakable release. So here's this uh, poem by Portia Nelson, Autobiography in Five Short Chapters. Chapter One. I walk down the street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in. 
I am lost, I am helpless, it isn't my fault, it takes forever to find a way out. Chapter 2 I walk down the same street, there's a deep hole in the sidewalk, I pretend I don't see it, I fall in again. I can't believe I'm in the same place, but it, but it isn't my fault. It still takes a long time to get out. Chapter 3 I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it is there. I still fall in. It's a habit. My eyes are open. I know where I am. It's my fault. I get out immediately. Chapter 4 I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I walk around it. Chapter 5 I walk down another street. So we need a lot of patience with our study of dukkha. And uh, if we're in a hurry, we won't really see what we need to see. If we're tied and afraid or controlling any way, we won't see what we need to see. And this is where there, it takes a lot of courage. And we build that courage by not going to the suffering that's overwhelming, but just working with the suffering, the ordinary squeezes in our heart, the ordinary weight that we feel at times in our heart. So next week, when we come together, the last 25 minutes or so will be used for small groups. And I encourage as many of you who can to stay for those small groups. And part of the Buddhist Studies program is committing to reflecting in these small groups every other week. Now, some of you might prefer just some of your own Dharma friends at home that you connect with over the phone or wherever, and that's fine. But to be in conversation with other uh, practitioners is really important. And so... This uh, instruction I gave you a little bit earlier in the talk of mapping out some places in your life where you notice your heart is squeezed or weighed down, turning that into a teacher, really revisioning that difficult place in your life as a teacher, and then seeing what you can learn in the days before we meet again next Monday night. And um, then, like I mentioned, for the last half an hour, we'll break into small groups or you'll find a way to do it at home on your own and just have a conversation about what you're learning by transforming dukkha into a teacher. It's been nice to be with you. Really sorry that some of the some of you had internet problems. Hopefully we'll get that figured out for by next Monday. And uh, we do need some volunteers tomorrow. Somebody has donated um, from a family's estate sale some furniture for our, our retreat property. And this is a place uh, not too far from McAllister College in St. Paul. We're going to meet there at 9.30. You can contact me if you've got uh, 45 minutes or so to help us load a trailer. Or you can contact the center, the info at org email. And we'll give you the address, but we'll be meeting at 9.30 tomorrow for about 45 minutes. Wishing everyone well, wishing everyone a good week, and hope to see you next Monday night. Bye-bye. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website www.commongroundmeditation.org